Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kia ora and welcome from RNZ National. Here's Our Changing World with me, Alison Balance. Wasps. It's that time of year when nasty introduced wasps are making a nuisance of themselves. But tonight, we're going to hear about the good wasps. Yep, you heard that right, the good wasps. These are the kind of wasps that fly under most people's radar, but not Tom Saunders. He's a PhD student at the University of Auckland, but his fascination with these insects started with research for his master's degree. So right now we're standing at the New Zealand Arthropod Collection, which is the largest insect collection in New Zealand, and it's housed at Landcare Research in Auckland. And we can see a lot of wooden drawers with glass lids on them, which contain thousands of specimens of pinned insects. I feel like we should go for a walk because we're standing in the middle of the room. Let's just walk this way. Okay. And it's just to get a sense of how long it is. So one, two, three, four, five rows, double-sided rows, like a library, but a library full of pinned insects. So let's go back down to the middle of the room where your species of interest are. But as we go down, we've got hemiptera, bugs, yep, the bugs, cicadas. So this is just starting the hymenoptera straight away, which is my area of interest. So hymenoptera are? Bees, ants and wasps. How and big is that group in New Zealand? In New Zealand, we've only got about less than 40 species of bees and I think about the same number of ants. So the majority of the bees, ants and wasps in New Zealand are actually the wasps, and the majority of the wasps are parasitoid wasps. So people are quite familiar with the vespids, the yellow jackets, the stinging wasps, the ones that live in the colonies and paper wasps and all that sort of thing. Those are the ones that when I say to people I'm coming out to do a story with you about parasitic wasps, they all universally go, we hate wasps. Yeah, absolutely. And they're thinking of those introduced ones, Yeah, they? they are, they are. And the, so we've got like five species of introduced social wasps, and just those five species have tarnished the reputation of all wasps. But the wasps I'm interested in are called parasitoid wasps, and they are actually far more diverse than the stinging wasps. There are loads more species of them. In New Zealand, we don't have any native stinging wasps, so all of our native wasps are actually parasitoid wasps. And how many species are we talking about? Well, the thing is is that we don't have an exact figure because we don't really know, but what we do know is that it's somewhere between two to 3,000 species. And we don't know just because we haven't looked well enough? Yeah, it's a combination of things, really. It's um, a lack of sort of sampling efforts, so a lack of studies that have actually gone out there, um, collected loads of parasitic wasps and just kind of figured out how many species there could be and how many species there, there actually are observed. Um, It's also the fact that there are very few trained taxonomists in New Zealand, so those are the people who um, describe, name, classify species. And I think it's a shame because these wasps are known to be really important everywhere that they exist. They're known to be what are called keystone species. And so keystone species are, are species that have a disproportionate impact on their ecosystem. So if you take them away, you notice their absence. And so the reason why 
parasitoid wasps are keystone species is because they have a very intimate association with their hosts. And in New Zealand, the hosts are generally moths and butterflies. And so, you know, you've got the start of the pyramid, which is the plant, and then you've got the moth, little moth larvae that lives on the plant. Otherwise known as a caterpillar. Otherwise known as a caterpillar. And then you've got the uh, wasp that attacks the moth larvae. So it's, it's quite an intimate link. And so for that reason as well, parasitoid wasps, because they're on that sort of outer link, they're quite extinction prone. They're quite sensitive to environmental changes. And for that reason, they may also be able to be used as a sort of indicator species as to what other diversity there is. Because if you see a parasitic wasp, you know that its host is around and its host's food plant is around. So straight away you've got information about two more species from that one. So it's quite cool. Can we have a look in one of these drawers that says Hymenoptera? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. If you'd asked me to say what are these things in this drawer, wasps would not have been the first thing that came to mind because some of them look almost like a large mosquito and some of them look like small spindly flies. So what is it that makes these guys wasps? So wasps have got two pairs of wings, which distinguish them from flies. They've only got one pair of wings and a reduced hind wing. And the parasitic wasps, they have uh, what's called an ovipositor, which is a, a tube on the females that they use to lay their eggs. So they, they either inject their egg into a caterpillar or they just kind of lay their egg onto a caterpillar or next to it. So that's the pointy sword-like yeah. thing that sticks out the end that people would probably go, oh, that's a stinger. A sting, yeah. People think it's a stinger. And so the, the stinging wasps, the, the sort of annoying ones, they actually arose from the parasitic wasps. So this is kind of the ancestral condition. And so the, the stinging wasps kind of evolved. Their, their ovipositor sort of turned into a sting. So, so that's kind of how that works. But wasps have also got a sort of narrow waist. Ah, is the, what you'd the call traditional it. wasp waist. Yes, the wasp waist. They're also really cool, interesting creatures. Now, these all look very brown. Is that just because they're dried specimens? Uh, this is actually one genus. Well, two, but, but they're quite closely related genus. These ones uh, are all from my master's study, so these were all caught during my trapping. And trapping here in Auckland? Yeah, so it was kind of on the suburban fringe between the Waitakere Ranges and West Auckland. You don't have to go very far in New Zealand to find an amazing amount of biodiversity. And they call it, like, you know, it's called backyard biodiversity because you can, even if you put a trap out in your backyard in the, in the middle of, you know, suburban Auckland, you would trap all sorts of wasps like this. Maybe not as many species, but you would definitely get a really interesting mix and you would be able to have a look at all the different ones that there are. We were focusing mainly on two groups of parasitic wasps simply because they're the most well known and they have the identification resources available and so we caught about 87 species um, of those two groups but only three or four were actually known to species level and so the rest were were undescribed and so we had to compare them with all the specimens that, that we have here in the New Zealand arthropod collection to figure out you know, what species are what and what ones are different from, from what. And then we also used some um, DNA work to match up the males with the females to make sure that we got the right association there. So that was really interesting. They've got very long antennae. Am I right in thinking that that would be part of how they find those moth larvae? Yeah, so parasitoid wasps in general, they hone in on their hosts based on chemicals that they sense in the environment. So they're called semiochemicals. And so what happens is the female will sort of 
uh, hone in on odors associated with either the host or the host plant from a long range. And then once it, once it finds a sort of like a, a habitat or an, an area of vegetation that matches uh, its, its host preferences, then it will start to carry out more of a localised search. So it will, you know, fly around the vegetation or walk around the leaves. And, and, and when they're doing that sort of thing, they sort of drum their antennae on the leaf surface and that helps them to pick up those volatile chemical cues. Oh, so they're not just waving them around in the breeze. No, no, no. They're sort of drumming them around, and then that helps them to figure out the direction that the odours might be travelling and coming from. It's kind of like a stereo sort of effect, so they can kind of figure out where their host might be. Yeah. And then they find a caterpillar. What happens? Yep. Many parasitic wasps are endoparasitoids, which means that, that, that they actually inject the egg into the body of the caterpillar. And then it's kind of one of those scenarios out of the... Ridley Scott alien films where the egg hatches inside the caterpillar and the little wasp larva feeds on the caterpillar's insides. Um, in most cases, it feeds selectively to keep the host alive for as long as possible to give it a nice cosy corpse to live in. And so then what happens is once the wasp is ready to, to form a little pupa, it'll pop out of the host normally, form a pupa, or, or stay inside and form a pupa. And then an adult wasp will emerge after it's completed its development and sort of go off to do the same thing. And these wasps have pretty specialised relationships with their prey, i.e. they will only target a particular species of moth? Yeah, so there's a bit of variation. There are some parasitoid wasps that are very host-specific and they will only target a single species of moth or whatever else they're interested in. And then there are other species that are more generalist and they might target species from, you know, a whole group, like they might target all stink bugs or all beetles from a certain group. Now, you say there are tons and tons of undescribed species, but you have managed to describe one, haven't you? Yes, I described one with the help of my supervisor during my master's project. And the excellent thing about this species is that when you describe a species, mostly the genus name is already known, which is the first part. So for humans, Homo sapiens, Homo is the genus. So that part's normally already known. And so with this species, um, the genus was already known to be Lucius. So I thought, oh, reminded me of the, um, the Harry Potter character, Lucius Malfoy, uh, because his blonde hair is quite similar to the, the colour of their, their bodies. And also, I started to think about how people have a really negative perception of wasps. And it's similar in, with the Harry Potter series, how you know everyone knows that Lucius Malfoy is this massive villain and everyone hates him. But then at the end of the series, he's kind of pardoned for his crimes because he, he breaks away from the Death Eaters and the, the sort of other evil wizards and sort of thing. So I thought I could maybe use that idea to hopefully generate some interest in parasitoid wasps and biodiversity and taxonomy and how important it is to describe species and, and give them names that... that people actually care about because if you don't care about something you're not going to want to conserve it so that was the whole idea behind it so would any of these native parasitoid wasps be of any use to me in my garden with things like cabbage white butterflies the thing is is that native parasitoids uh, have evolved here to target native species so if you have native species that are causing damage then absolutely they would they would target those. But there are also some useful exotic species, so species that have been sourced from overseas and deliberately uh, introduced here, and some of those target the, the common pests. There was a parasitoid wasp from Kazakhstan that was introduced to fight a pest in apple orchards, so it targets 
the larvae of a codling moth, and so it means that we don't have to use as many pesticides. But yeah, in terms of what you would be finding in your garden, probably not helping your veggie patch a whole lot, but in saying that, there would certainly be some species that would be targeting aphids or other things like that. In the case of the codling moth, it's a case of my enemy's enemy is my friend. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the whole, the whole concept of biological control, which is uh, sort of using one living creature to battle another, is that if you have a pest that comes from overseas and establishes in an area that it hasn't evolved in, it probably won't have many natural enemies here in that, in that new range. And so the whole concept of, of biological control is if you can introduce the natural enemy to that, to that place, you can re-establish that link and then you can get some of that natural control that would normally be happening in the native range, but in the new range that's been invaded by that pest. And that's the area you're getting involved in for your PhD now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the, the, my PhD is um, just started really at Plum Food Research, and I'm working there with um, Gonzalo Avila. We're working on testing a, an Asian species of, of parasitoid wasp to see if it would be a good idea to release it in New Zealand should the brown marmorated stink bug establish here. So that's an insect that we're worried might end up here. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the most unwanted pests uh, by MPI and and industry groups because it has the potential to cause uh, massive damage. So it's just recently um, expanded its range. It's just kind of recently been found in Europe and um, the United States and North America. And it's caused a lot of damage there. I mean, in 2010 uh, in the United States, just for apples alone, it was 37 million US dollars of damage just for the apple crop in that one year. It's also disrupted hazelnut production in Georgia and Europe. And, you know, they're actually one of the, the biggest producers of hazelnuts in the world. So you're planning ahead. And what does that involve doing? Does that involve making sure that if you wanted to bring the parasitoid wasp here, it's not going to do something like the ferrets and go, why would I eat rabbits when I can eat flightless birds? Thank you very much. You don't want the, this parasitic wasp preying on other native things. Yeah, absolutely. That's that. That is the the main reason. And so, there's really been an evolution uh, in in the practice of biological control over the years. So, recently, you know, there has been um, a much greater emphasis placed on carrying out the proper work beforehand to make sure that there aren't going to be non-target impacts. That, that the species you're interested in isn't going to switch to a different host or or prey item, um, and to make sure that it's going to be as specific as possible to your target pest that you're interested in in suppressing. Thanks, Tom. That was Tom Saunders from the University of Auckland. His PhD project is part of the Better Border Biosecurity, or B3, science collaboration, researching new ways to stop new plant pests and diseases from entering New Zealand and establishing here, including the dreaded brown marmorated stink bug. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 22nd of March 2018. All our audio stories, as well as written web features and photos, are online at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. We are also available as a podcast on the RNZ app, or you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts from, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Radio Public. There are lots of other RNZ podcasts to check out as well. William Ray is back with a brand new series of Black Sheep, which kicks off with the tale of possible pirate Charlotte Badger. If you feel social, we are on Twitter and Facebook at RNZ Science. 
Bye for now. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.